Hey, Jay, what you reading? Oh, hey, Miles. I was just going back through some old issues of X-Factor. You know, in memory of Madrox. Man, I still can't believe they killed him. Killed him again, you mean. Hurts every time. You must have had a pretty rough few months during They Keep Killing Madrox, huh? It was a difficult period of time, yeah. The deaths, and then there was all that time travel. To be fair, there was a lot of time travel in that X-Factor series. Oh man, that was the one with the Summer's Rebellion future, wasn't it? With Cyborg Cyclops? Yeah, and Ruby, and super, super old Doctor Doom. He ended up betraying them, right? I mean, dude, he's Doctor Doom. He's really only got one agenda, and that's his. Point. Uh, Didn't he end up involved in the time travel stuff too, though? Or was that just Fitzroy? No, Doom was at least involved. He helped set up Cortex. Cortex? Cortex was one of Madrox's dupes. He got brainwashed to go back in time, kill a bunch of mutants who would otherwise be pivotal to the creation of the timeline and the success of the rebellion. Why does no one ever seem to worry about the butterfly effect in these situations? I mean, you occasionally get massive splinter timelines like Age of Apocalypse, but for the most part, time travel doesn't seem to do much to the time stream. Well, in this case, I mean, it was a non-issue. Cortex had a doomlock. One of those killer robots? No, man, you're thinking of Deathlocks, or possibly Doombots. And Doom sent him back to prevent the Summer's Rebellion timeline. What? No, no, no. Doom just made the Doomlock. The actual mastermind was Damien Tripp. The devil guy? No, that's Damien Hellstrom. Damien Tripp is the medieval quasi-mutant who murdered Madrox's parents, spent centuries trying to stop the Summer's Rebellion. Sounds like a busy dude. Oh, and he briefly ran a detective agency to compete with X-Factor Investigations. What?! I'm Jay Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 132 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. So we are back. Now, to the world at large, it may seem like we've just been gone for our usual week, but in fact, we haven't been in the studio in a while. Like years. Right, because I was at New York Comic Con, and then Jay, you had that trip to the Midwest, right? And then as soon as we got back, we got pulled into the future to raise our theoretical son who would someday become the mutant messiah. It's been a while. Speaking of New York Comic Con, I met a bunch of you there, or re-met a bunch of you as well, uh, both of those things, and it was great. It's really good to actually meet listeners in person, and especially good to re-meet ones that we've hung out with before and just resume whatever conversations we had or start new ones, or I don't know. It's cool actually having those relationships with listeners, even if we only see each other seldom. Thank you guys all for coming to the show, whether we're meeting for the first time or the fourth. Speaking of conventions, on Saturday, November 5th, next weekend, we are going to be returning to Vegas Valley Comic Book Fest at Clark County Library in Las Vegas, Nevada. This is an awesome show. It's entirely free. It's a library show. We're going to be tabling all weekend. We've got panels. And we are also once again going to be recording a live episode. I think we're going to be talking about some annuals. And I am really excited about this one because we are going to be joined on stage for at least part of it by the amazing Scott Koblish, one of our favorite artists and favorite people, for something that um, I'm not going to spoil, but I will say I think accurately is completely unprecedented in the history of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. I would definitely describe it that way, yeah. So to see that and to see us, please show up. Vegas Valley Comic Book Fest is actually a really cool show. It's small, it's quiet, as compared to some of the other shows that we've done. And so, yeah, we'll be less distracted. There'll be less, you know, overwhelming sights and sounds and stimuli and stuff. And it's a cool place to just quietly check out some really cool creators and their really cool work. And also us. Yeah, I can't talk up the show enough. We had such a good time there last year. It was just it was incredibly chill. We got to see a lot of amazing people do some really, really cool workshops and meet a lot of really, really wonderful listeners. So we are really looking forward to coming back this year and to seeing you all there again. So, yeah, come down, buy T-shirts and zines, 
come to the live show and then see everyone else who's amazing there because, oh my God, they've also got a really good guest list. It's true, yeah. Like, we're not even that comparatively cool. (laughs) Now, while we're talking about upcoming events... We got some news this past week. Now, this will be slightly older news by the time the episode goes live because of the nature of recording. But yeah, we know what's happening in the next sort of reboot, re-envisioning of X-Men with the Resurrection event. Or, or at least we know what seven of the announced titles are and the vague premises of those books. Now, if you haven't been following the X-News obsessively like we do, this is going to happen after Death of X and after Inhumans vs. X-Men. We thought it was a miniseries, but now it looks more like just sort of an event heading called Resurrection or Resurrection. Resurrection. We checked with Charles Soule, remember? And yeah, it looks like we're going to have relaunches of all the X-Books, but they're all going to be different X-Books. So we've got two team books, possibly more, but the ones we know for sure are X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold. And that, of course, is a reference to the Blue Team and Gold Team of the early 90s, where the adjectiveless X-Men was about the Blue Team and Uncanny was about the Gold Team. I do find this mode of disambiguation a lot simpler. (laughs) It's interesting. I mean, to have that deliberate a return to 90s terminology... It sort of echoes what the ex-editors were saying about this in interviews, which is that they want X-Men to return to being fun, basically, to be, you know, brightly colored, cape-wearing heroes doing heroic things, protecting a world that hates and fears them. So who are those heroes going to be? Well, we actually don't know, because no details of any of these books have been announced, from creative teams to the people and the cast of the books themselves. We do, however, have the names of the three characters who are going to be headlining the solo series that have been announced so far, and those are Iceman, Jean Grey, and Cable. And I'm really excited about, well, at least two of those. So the thing with Cable is Cable can be the worst X-Men character or one of the best X-Men characters, and it just depends on what the story's doing and who's writing and drawing the character. So I don't know where that will go. I do hope they pick up on some of the weird stuff from Cy Spurrier's X-Force run. We'll see how that goes. So Iceman is about one of the versions of Iceman. There are two alive right now in the Marvel Universe, as far as I know. And a third who we know is at least on the way eventually in the indeterminate future. I'm personally hoping that it's going to be a three-way team-up between all-new Iceman, adult Iceman, and Ice Wizard Iceman of the future. I mean, that would be pretty great. But either way, we now have something that's very rare in mainstream comics, which is a superhero book about a queer main character. So that's kind of awesome. Unfortunately, all three solo titles are, you know, white main characters. So it's still a very waspy looking line. Well, that's true. But yeah, and as far as the Jean Grey ongoing, Jean Grey's never had an ongoing. I mean, we've seen little Phoenix series here and there, miniseries, but I don't know where this is going to go, but it's an exciting concept. I do love me some Jean Grey. I remain deeply disappointed that I'm not writing it. <laughs> that's legit. But that's okay. So there are two other books that have been announced. One of those is called Weapon X. And all we know about that is it's apparently going to be very dark and very violent, according to the ex-editors. No clue who's on the cast, given that we haven't heard of a book with Laura Kinney with Wolverine. Presumably she'll be in there. I hope so. She better be. be. I want her to be Wolverine forever. Speaking of Wolverine, uh, well, we've got one more book to go through, but I I want to talk about the Logan trailer a little bit, too. Yeah, let's talk about that after this last book. But the final book that's been announced is Generation X. And the teaser for it shows literally every teenage team of X-Men from the New Mutants onward. I've been pushing for a school-based, youth-based X-Book for a long time. New X-Men is one of my favorite books. New Mutants was my original favorite X-Book. And I really, really hope this can capture the feel of them. I want soap opera. I want drama. I want ridiculous adventures. Like, I really hope we can get those things. I'm, I'm optimistic about this. This is the one I'm most excited about. Given the breadth of the teaser image, my money on this one is actually on an anthology title. That's another thing we haven't seen in a very long time, a book that focused on sort of X-Men short stories. So X-Men Unlimited style? Yeah, but focused on the kids. Yeah. Any generation of them across any time period. 
At the same time, having something that could really dive in deep and follow these teenage characters for a while, also appealing. Uh, so, yeah, those are our new books for Resurrexion, at least the ones we know about. There could certainly be more, or maybe some of the current ones will keep going. I'm pushing for all new Wolverine. But like you said, there's also the trailer for the third Wolverine movie, Logan. Or, as I like to call it, the last true grit of us. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's got uh, the feel of both of those. But at this point, it's very clear that it's going to be based at least loosely on Old Man Logan, and that X-23 is going to be one of the main characters. And I gotta say, the choice to use Johnny Cash's cover of the Nine Inch Nails song Hurt for that trailer adds so, so, so much to it. On one hand, it's a little on the nose. It's a lot on the nose, actually. On the other hand, one of my all-time ships is Logan and the music of Johnny Cash. So, you know, here's another thing about it. This is the first X trailer in a very long time, maybe ever actually, that I've seen and thought not only this looks like I will enjoy watching it because X-Men, but this looks like it might actually be a genuinely good movie. I really hope so. I mean, I think uh, it's the same director that did The Wolverine, the second Wolverine movie, which, you know, it was flawed and it got weird at the end, but I quite enjoyed it. So yeah, I think you liked that one more than I did. I, I think I probably did. Uh, although I think you liked X-Men Origins Wolverine a lot more than I did. Yeah, but not because I have any illusions that it was good. Yeah, well. I mean, I fully recognize that it is an absolutely terrible movie. It's just also deeply entertaining. But yeah, this one could be kind of awesome, or it could just be a great trailer for what turns out to be a terrible movie. Kind of like the Hellgate London trailer was a great trailer for a terrible game. We'll see. This is going to be the movie where Logan finally learns what a Wolverine is. <laughs> I can just see him falling to his knees, you know, claws extended. No, I thought they were wolves. No. Yes, it'll be a perfect bookend with the scene where he does that at like age eight in Origin. Perfect. See? Okay. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Fox, call us. Uh, no, it's probably actually going to be better than the things we're describing because we're terrible. <laughs> So anyway, all of that news out of the way, we do in fact have some comic books to uh, talk about. We, we do that on this show sometimes. What? We're going to do it this time. What? So what are we talking about this episode? Today, we are going to be continuing our coverage of the New Mutants Asgard adventure. Yeah, this is part two of two. So if you haven't listened to our previous New Mutants Asgard adventure episode, that one will make this one make a lot more sense. But we'll recap real fast, too. So what's going on? Okay, so these days, the status quo of the New Mutants is that they have sort of merged with the X-Factor kids slash X-Terminator kids. Their teams have merged. The individuals have not merged. Right. They remain be, distinct. That would be grotesque and gruesome. But yeah, Well, no, so, or it would just be amalgam. You know, that's, that's its own kind of gruesome, I suppose. But yeah, so from the old team, from the original New Mutants, we have Cannonball, Mirage, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, and Warlock. And from the X-Terminators, Rusty, Skids, Boom Boom, and Richter. Uh, I believe Rusty's codename is technically Firefist, which we are contractually obliged to mention once an episode and then refuse to use. Right, and also Cyclops' optic blasts come from a dimension of pure force, and I don't care how many times they say that that was uh, an error in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, it's canon goddammit forever. I hate that, but either way, they're not lasers. Yeah, well. And so, yes, the New Mutants uh, a long time ago went to Asgard along with the X-Men for one of the coolest X-Men stories ever. Art Adams was drawing it. It was great. During this time, Mirage became a Valkyrie. And so now she has an Asgardian Pegasus named Brightwind, you know, the standard uh, vehicle of Valkyries in Asgard. And she can also see impending death. She gets these visions when people are going to die. Which doesn't work super well because she is surrounded by people who are constantly in mortal peril. Well, it used to work better, but ever since Inferno, she's been getting terrible headaches, and she's been seeing death visions, like, pretty much constantly, as opposed to just when it was a sure thing, like before. Last episode saw Danny possessed by a flaming death demon. Doctor Strange briefly attempted to cure her, was unable to, and instead ended up sending Danny and the rest of the New Mutants to Asgard in hopes that, you know, they could handle it. 
And while they were in Asgard, we found out that this was all a plot by Hela, the Norse goddess of death with one of the coolest hats in the entire Marvel Universe. Like, I think she's probably better than Galactus in that regard. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, Hela has a totally sweet hat. She does. It's very Kirby. But yeah, she's been infecting all the Valkyries with this sickness that is essentially possessing them and making them demons that work for her. Meanwhile on Midgard, Earth, Rusty and Skids were captured by Freedom Force. They have been jailed. And that's because Freedom Force saw a bunch of stuff catch fire once when Danny got possessed and became a flame demon and assumed that it was probably Rusty's fault since his mutant power is the creation and manipulation of fire. And I'm pretty sure his secondary mutation is getting arrested constantly and having that be basically the only plot point he ever gets to have. Yeah, no, his secondary mutation is definitely being in the wrong place at the wrong time and then making all of the wrong choices. For the right reasons, at least. I mean... He's very bluthy in some ways. He really is, it's true. So, yes, that's our status quo right now. The New Mutants are in Asgard, Rusty and Skids are in jail, and Danny is possessed by a weird death-fire demon thing. So, business as usual. Pretty much. Now, uh, we're seeing the Asgard story mostly end in the issues we're talking about today, but we're also seeing the end of the run of artist Brett Blevins, who's been on New Mutants for quite a long time at this point. And who has gone during that time from one of our least favorite artists on this title to one of our very favorites and one of the definitive New Mutants artists. It's really weird to see him leave in the middle of this story arc because this is an arc where he's just absolutely owning it. He's at the top of his game and suddenly he's gone. There are a couple sort of fill-in issues by other people who are doing perfectly adequate pretty much house style. And the next issue after the ones we cover here, we're going to see the introduction of the new ongoing artist on New Mutants. That being the infamous Rob Liefeld. So yeah, this is very much the end of an era that we're looking at right now. Now, what it also is, because we're in Asgard, is an opportunity for an episode-long edition of Miles's Thorner. Right, this is an Asgard story, and it's an Asgard story where a lot that's not terribly interesting plot-wise happens. Like, a lot of things happen in very quick succession, but a lot of them are sort of repetitions of the same thing. So we're going to use that as a hook to go off on epic discursions into the surrounding Thor chronology. Right, because otherwise we would just talk about the New Mutants getting captured again and again and again, which is basically what happens in the storyline. Right, they should just have handles for this one. I think they should. So when last we left our heroes, they had been separated. Warlock holding Boom Boom and Hrumhari is stuck in Hela's power warp in a force field she's created to separate Valhalla from the rest of Asgard. And we're going to follow that team first. Now, as a reminder, Hrimhari is the silver werewolfy teenage boy wolf prince that Wolfsbane met back in the New Mutants' original trip to Asgard. Later on, they're going to have a kid also named Trip, who is going to be the king of hell, sort of, and then get murdered by Strong Guy, and it's complicated, and he climbs out of Rain's mouth, and it's, it's kind of gross. It's super weird. But yeah, so they managed to break free from getting stuck in this uh, barrier, just in time to be immediately chased by demons. Exit stage right, pursued by bear. Or demons. But not Demon Bear. No, no, no. He's not here this time. Now, Boom Boom, who hates Asgard and is not happy to be here anyway, wants to rescue the new mutants, but Hrumhari disagrees. Yeah, he points out that they're going to need Odin's help. I mean, they're fighting the goddess of death and a bunch of teenagers, even awesome teenagers, don't stand much of a chance. (sighs) Just the attitude I'd expect from a walking shag rug. I really enjoy the fact that Boom Boom and Hrimhari got stuck together because they have literally nothing in common. Like, I guess they're both teenagers, except Hrimhari's probably like a teenager on an Asgardian scale. Yeah, but they're both awesome. They are both awesome, but they're fun. It's fun seeing them sort of bicker. Now, they crash into Odin's chambers, but Odin 
unfortunately, is deep in the Odin sleep. What's the Odin sleep, Miles? So the Odin sleep is this restorative rest that Odin has to go into periodically. Now, in this case, as Hermhari explains, Odin just got done fighting Surtur and then Annihilus. So he's really tired and needs some Betty Bye for, you know, magic reasons. Is it basically hibernation? Does he eat a ton of nuts and berries and grow a thick layer of fat and then crawl into a cave for winter? That's exactly what happens, except, you know, Asgardian. That sounds delightful. I want to do that. Speaking of Asgard, so as they get to the city of Asgard to crash into Odin's chambers, we get to see it drawn by Blevins and colored by Glynis Oliver, who, of course, colored like a billion comics for a number of decades. And I love the way this looks. I mean, we really get that mix of fantasy and sci-fi that Asgard is always best defined by. And Glynis Oliver's choice to use a lot of solid colors, like, I don't know, for some reason it makes it look even more sci-fi to me that each building is its own weird pastel neon color, and I really dig that. Pastel neon, eh? You know, pastel slash neon. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Now, in the pastel neon building where Odin is ensconced, boom, boom, Warlock and Hramhari try to wake Odin up, but they can't because the Odin sleep is that hardcore. That kind of reminds me, do you remember that old board game that there would be ads for all the time on Saturday mornings called Don't Wake Daddy? I thought that was a Lifetime original movie. Oh, man. No, it was this game where, like, you know, you would press a button or roll a die or something every time you moved, and there was this sort of action figure of a dad in one of those sleeping caps that people don't really seem to wear in real life, and if he sat up in his bed, then he found you, and that was bad, I guess? God, that is really scary, isn't it? Yeah, that's a horrifying premise. I mean, okay, so you know how they keep doing movies of, like, Battleship, and they're going to be doing one of Tetris and stuff like that? I'm waiting for Don't Wake Daddy. It's going to be a gritty horror reboot of the Don't Wake Daddy franchise. It'll be a lot like that movie Don't Breathe that just came out. I feel like it would actually be less disturbing if you made Daddy some kind of eldritch abomination. Yeah, like I guess. It, would, it would make more sense and be less of a sort of this movie is just straight up about abusive families. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know if Hasbro or whoever would want to do that movie. It's true. But we digress. The point is they're trying to wake Odin. It doesn't work. And an Asgardian guard manages to capture them and throw them in prison. Hramhari thinks that they should wait for Balder, like that Balder will come get them out. He'll listen. He'll understand. It'll be just fine. Balder being one of the main gods of Asgard, who has been in charge at various points and is generally recognized as a super noble dude. And so they're just sort of killing time, waiting for this dude to come hear their case and end up talking about love. As you do. Boom Boom asks Hramhari about Wolfsbane because clearly he knows her. And he explains that he's desperately in love with her, but they're from different worlds and they can never be together. Boom Boom is unimpressed. This is so dumb. I can't believe I'm having a serious discussion about relationships with a werewolf. Is it me or should that be on the cover of like 17 or something? All of my serious conversations about relationships are with werewolves. That's legit. So yeah, they're just sort of sitting there briefly rotting in jail when suddenly some of my favorite children in all of comics show up to say hi. Is it the power pack? It is not the power pack, but it is the children of Volstagg the Enormous, the Lion of Asgard and one of the Warriors Three. So Volstagg and his wife have like a ton of kids and the most prominent of them is a little girl named Hildy who's, you know, super precocious and mischievous and definitely my favorite. Yeah, no, Hildy is the best kid. Hildy is spunky and smart. And she remembers who Hrimhari is. She recognizes him. In fact, all the kids recognize him from tales that Hogan the Grim has told them, because apparently Hogan the Grim is the go-to guy for bedtime stories in the Volstagg household. I bet he's got a super good reading voice, like really sonorous and dramatic. I bet he does all the voices, though, like when he's reading Corduroy. But they all sound grim. No. Oh, okay. No, he's sort of more Hogan the Rye in terms of his characterization. But I bet even he would make an exception for Volstagg's kids because no children are cuter than these children. That's quite true. So Volstagg's kids, led by Hildy, quickly find out what's going on, and they're like, all right, 
All of the heroes of Asgard are off doing a bunch of weird stuff, Balder included. So I'll tell you what, what you're saying is going on is a big deal. You guys go fix that and we will take your place in jail just to show how serious we are when the guards or whoever come back. And what you got to do when you get out, you got to go find this guy named Tiwaz of the Wastes. Okay, so Tiwaz of the Wastes, I want to talk about him because if you've been reading Thor around this era, which, you know, I had, you would know that in Thor number 355, after the Surt War, when Thor is looking for his dead father Odin and is crushed by an avalanche, he's restored by this old beardy giant out in the icy wastes. And he spends a few days recovering with this guy as they talk about sort of family and philosophy, and Tiwaz makes Thor wrestle for his dinner every night. Yeah, that's totally a thing. It totally is. And it's actually a really nice, poignant issue. Like, Tiwaz has all these ice creatures that he chisels out of ice and animates with his magic every day, and they melt by the light of the fire every night, and he teaches Thor all about, like, you know, the impermanence of life and how death is something you have to accept. And it's really sweet. And so I'm super happy that we're going to see him here, too. Isn't it fairly heavily implied that he's also Thor's grandfather? Great grandfather. He is, in fact, we find out in different issues, Buri, the father of Bor, the father of Odin, the father of Thor. Right, my mistake. So, yes, our heroes do, in fact, break out of jail and go fly on the Warlock Express to the Icy Wastes, where they get attacked by a frost giant. You know what would be the only thing better than the Warlock Express? What's that? The Dick Warlock Express. The Dick Warlock Express. I feel like if Dick Warlock ever seduces you, that phrase is probably going to come up very early in this process. Oh, my God. (laughs) Dick Warlock, if you listen to our show for some reason, let's talk about this. We're curious. We love you. We love you so much. We have nothing but respect for your career, which we only know a little about, and your name, which we know the only thing we need to know about, which is that it's awesome. I actually know a fair lot about his career, and this is not a man we want to antagonize. He could destroy us with, like, a glare. Well, I'm pretty sure we're clear Or possibly his eldritch powers. We're we're on his side, so... Anyway, uh, who's not on somebody's side, there's a segue for you, is this frost giant that's attacking Boom Boom, Hrimhari, and Warlock. And uh, they are rescued, in fact, by an impressive, giant, beardy, fur-clad Viking guy who freezes the Frost Giant with his own magic. It is, in fact, Tiwaz. Hi, Tiwaz. He is awesome. So the heroes all collapse because they've gotten, you know, Frost Gianted. They wake up in his home. Boom Boom does what she does in response to any stimulus and tries to blow Tiwaz up. And I love this part because he catches the time bomb in his hand and then opens it. And there's like a little frost fairy that comes out instead of a time bomb. He turned my time bomb into Tinkerbell. I really enjoy how the vast majority of our quotes in New Mutants episodes these days are boom boom. Um, obviously. Because she's great. Tick, tick, tick. (laughs) And so, yeah, they quickly realize that this is Tiwaz, he's a good dude, and I actually really like that boom boom is really sweet to him. Because he's nice. I mean, we've seen this before. Boom Boom goes into everything antagonistically, but when people are nice to her, she's usually pretty decent back. She is, unless they have a crush on her, in which case she keeps antagonizing them. Aw. Poor Richter. I mean, she's a kid. So, and kind of terrible. She is. So Tiwaz talks to them and hears about what's going on as far as Hela, you know, enslaving the Valkyries and all that stuff, and says, all right, I can't help you directly, but you know who you need? You need the Warriors Three. You need Fandral the Dashing, Hogan the Grim, and Volstag the Valiant slash Enormous. Unfortunately for our heroes, the Warriors Three have been captured by Queen Ula and her savage swarm, which is a hive full of little flying trolls. Okay, this is so freaking wonderful. Ula and the Savage Swarm are actually from this old 60s Thor story. They're so pulpy and wonderful, and I love that Simonson is pulling out such a deep cut from Thor history here. Yeah, this is their first appearance, I believe, since 1966. I think so, yeah. Also, troll bugs. I love the concept of troll bugs. 
they dress very brightly. Everyone in Asgard dresses super brightly, actually, which I really appreciate. Like Asgard is all about the saturated colors. It kind of reminds me of the future we see at the beginning of Bill and Ted's bogus journey where everyone's wearing that brightly colored neon foam. Oh, you're totally right. Rufus's home timeline. Exactly. Station. Station. So they figure, okay, well, let's go and attack a bug troll hive to save the Warriors 3. This is what one does in Asgard. Okay. Fuck yeah. And so they head off to do that. Now, they do manage to distract everybody in Ula's hive. And Ula, by the way, also has an awesome hat. I'm pretty sure she was created by Jack Kirby, so that explains that. Well, I mean, Asgard is also the home of many, many of the best hats of Marvel Comics. And they're going to sneak the Warriors 3 aboard their ship, who is also Warlock, but Volstag is too heavy. And he explains to Warlock, Thou art no Asgardian creation, but a flimsy thing, unsuitable to one of my stature. Thou must go and leave me to my fate. Luckily for Volstag, Tiwaz is still spying along in his scrying stone, because I can't actually help you directly doesn't mean I can't, you know, keep an eye on you and pull strings from the background you know, like some kind of creepy mastermind. Yeah, so he shrinks Volstag and they're all fine. To roughly doll size. Yep. Boom Boom is, of course, very impressed with the cuteness level of Fandral the Dashing because she's Boom Boom and that's how she works. Um, he is Fandral. Everyone is impressed with his cuteness level. Now, they're trying to escape, but the brief time bomb related distraction they had to get the Warriors 3 out was, well, brief. And what they find out is that the trolls have captured the Warriors 3 in retribution for something that they think that Asgard has been doing, which is sending Valkyries on raids to capture their living warriors. Now, Valkyries picking up warriors is not a rare thing and is not a cause for war, but in this case, they haven't been going after the dead, the battle-fallen warriors. They've been taking fighters who are alive, and they seem all wrong and red and kind of possessed, and the trolls figure that this is Asgard staging raids. So Hrimhari explains, no, 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 this is Hela's thing, we're trying to stop her, we should all be buds. And they say, ah, yes, Hermhari the Wolf Prince, the famous character that's really only appeared in a couple of stories ever, which weren't themselves Thor stories. We know your reputation. We believe you. Let's team up. So now we have a Wolf Prince, a couple of mutants, and an army of flying bug trolls. So one of the things I actually really love about this story and how scattered it is, is that it does a great job setting up Asgard as a larger world that keeps on going when the new mutants aren't hanging out there. Of course everyone knows who Hrimhari is. He's the Prince of the Wolves. Of course, you know, there are all of these diffuse realms around Asgard. It's a big place. Yeah, I mean, you figure that Midgard, Star Earth, is just one of the nine, well, okay, ten these days, but at the time, nine realms. Like, that's Earth. That's where everything takes place. That's where we live. It's a full world. And so the other realms, you know, Nidavalir, Svartalfheim, all those different ones, I mean, those are worlds presumably just as big as Earth. And yeah, that vastness totally comes through. What it actually reminds me of is some of the L. Frank Baum Oz books. You know, that I can totally see that. I mean, especially the weird little flying guys and the supersaturation. And some of that, I think, is because of Art Adams and because I'm always going to associate those Asgardian Wars title marquees with John R. Neal's art since they're such a heavy homage to it. They totally are. Yeah. But yeah, I think there's a lot of cross pollination, well, not cross pollination, kind of one way pollination. But I think there's definitely a touch of Oz here. So, okay, that's what's going on with Team A, with Boom Boom, Warlock, and Hrimhari. But those aren't our only main characters. We also have Cannonball, Wolfsbane, Sunspot, and Richter, who did get through that barrier that Warlock got stuck in at the beginning of this arc. And they are currently with Mist. Mist is one of the possessed Valkyries, but she is able to some extent to shake off the possession because she is part fairy, so she can resist a little bit. And she whispers to them to play along and let her capture them because she's got a plan. 
And I should point out that our good buddy Tom actually got us a page from this very scene, which we have at home. It is a prized possession. It is awesome. It is extremely cool. So they agree to trust her. Again, so much capturing in this arc. And so they get led through to the realm of hell. That's hell with one L, of course, the realm of the dead in Norse mythology. And it is guarded by Garm, who is a really huge wolf, who Wolfsbane is super freaked out about. Is Garm the same dude as Fenrir, or are they different in this? Okay, so you have a number of hell or death-related wolves in Norse mythology. Garm and Fenrir are the two named ones that I know of. And from what I understand, a number of scholars think they might be intended to represent the same being. Scholars on the comics or scholars on the actual mythos? Uh, Scholars on the mythos, or at least scholars on, you know, Wikipedia and things that it links to. So I don't have any Garm stories, but I do have an awesome Fenrir story. And I feel like I might have told this on the podcast before, but it's awesome enough that if I'm telling it a second time, I feel completely okay about that. So the deal is Fenrir is one of the three children of Loki. There's Fenrir, there's Jormungand, which is uh, the world serpent, a great big snake dragon thing. And then there's Hela herself, the goddess of death. Biology is, it's a thing, you know, we don't worry about it too much in Norse mythology. So the gods were kind of worried by Fenrir because they knew that Loki's children were all involved in this dark Ragnarok prophecy. And so they wanted to bind him, you know, to chain him up so he couldn't get in any trouble. And so knowing how dangerous he was, they were like, all right, hey, Fenrir, let's play a game. Let's see how tough you are. Can you break these chains? And of course, he did every time because he was a super badass giant hell wolf. So the gods figured, okay, what do we do? Hey, dwarves, you can forge awesome things. Would you mind forging like a super great chain? And maybe that will chain Fenrir up. And so the dwarves made this chain called Gleipnir, which was made with the sound of a cat's footsteps, the beard of a woman, the roots of mountains, the breath of a fish, and the spittle of a bird. If they were the sounds of our cat's footsteps, they would have been sort of clunky. Fenrir was like, all right, this chain is really light. You guys are like giggling to yourselves or whatever. Something's up. So I'll tell you what, I'll try to break these chains as well as a test of strength. But one of you has to put your hand in my mouth while I do in case you're fucking with me. And so Tyr, the god of war and a very noble god, was like, all right, I'll do it. It's worth it. And Fenrir got chained up by something he couldn't break out of, and Tyr got his hand bitten off, so that's why Tyr has one hand. And they all lived happily ever after. So this has been, you know, your edition of Miles Talks About a Thing Only Tangentially Related to the Comic, because it's awesome. Anyway, they head on past Garm, and Rain is really freaked out by him, and Richter is comforting her, because Richter is the best bro. Richter is such a good dude. I actually really like the character that Richter has developed into, because he was very ill-defined other than being scared when we first saw him in X-Factor. To be fair, he was entirely justified in that fear. Oh, he, yeah, he'd been through some shit, no doubt. But yeah, at this point, he pines after Boom Boom. He's very protective toward Rain. He's just a very emotional, very sensitive dude. He's not really pining after Boom Boom. And again, you know, we talked about this with Nightcrawler, but Richter is doing a pretty good job of demonstrating how not to be a nice guy TM. He's got a huge crush on Boom Boom. He doesn't think that she's reciprocally interested. So he's just trying to be a really good friend to her. Yeah, well, he also knows that she's got some of her own stuff. So when Rain asks if she knows that Richter's so into her, he responds... No way. She'd figure if I was dumb enough to like her, I wouldn't be worth having as a boyfriend. Aw, these kids. It's okay. I mean, I don't think Boom Boom and Richter really end up together, but you know, they'll have good things happen in their lives, and also terrible things. So, Mist helps the kids escape during the long march, but she's having more and more trouble fighting off Hela's influence. The plan is that the kids and Mist are going to go. They're going to rescue Hela's prisoners. These are the Anhariar and the dwarves. The Anhariar being the fallen warriors the Valkyries have retrieved to be Odin's super badass semi-undead army. And meanwhile, presumably, their pals will be off warning Odin. We already know how that side of the story's filling out. Right. He's asleep and thus other stuff. 
And so, yeah, they're sneaking around. Now, as they do, they see the dwarves carrying this cauldron of molten Uru metal, which is the metal that Mjolnir, Thor's hammer, and a few other very, very special artifacts. And Stormbreaker and that other hammer that Loki made for Storm. And basically, Uru metal like adamantium, vibranium, kryptonite, etc. is super rare, except when it's plot relevant, and then you can get a cauldron of it pretty easily. And what the plan for this Uru metal is at this point is that Hela is going to force Itri, the dwarven forger, to make her a sword out of it. Otherwise, Hela's gonna, you know, kill his daughter, this woman named Kendra, who we met the first time the New Mutants were in Asgard. She and Sam had kind of mutual crushes, and it was super cute. Yeah, he married her in a what-if. And uh, I actually love Sam, who's still hiding at this point, saying as he sees Kendra being threatened, No, she's gentle and full of fun! Which is just such a weird and charming line, I don't know. I mean, it's a very Sam line. So, Hela does indeed successfully force Itri saying that otherwise she'll kill Kendra and all the new mutants and basically everyone, to make this thing called the Death Sword. She explains why she wants it. She's going to give it to Mirage, the completely possessed Mirage, and have her kill Odin in his sleep. And in Norse mythology, if you die some way other than battle, if you die the straw death, then you belong to Hela. So if this works, Hela will have, you know, Odin as her slave. That's actually a really good plan. I'm surprised she hasn't done it before. Like, yeah, that's actually a very clever plan. Yeah, I'm surprised she doesn't do a lot of assassination, given how this apparently works. So Itri does indeed begin forging the sword with a great big doom sound effect, which, as awesome as that is, I kind of have to object to that sound effect. Yeah, that's a sound effect that's associated with a very specific, well, sword being forged. It is the sound effect that followed us across, I believe, the first dozen issues of Walter Simonson's run as we saw Surtur forging the Doom Sword. Yeah, like almost every issue would open or close with this giant shadowed demon just hitting this big sword on an anvil, and it's just going doom and echoing across the cosmos. And that was a full year of buildup before you realize that this is Surtur, and he's going to go to war with Asgard. And if I haven't mentioned, Walter Simonson's run of Thor is possibly the most epic thing to ever exist. Yeah, the word epic gets thrown around casually a lot. We mean it when we apply it to that book. We do. Epic uh, as in the bards shall sing of it. And some probably already do, because there are several rock and roll bands who sing songs largely about superhero comics. Yes, and that's awesome. So, yeah, the New Mutants plan at this point, they're like, all right, so what we actually need to do is A, escape because we've been imprisoned again, and steal that sword so that Danny can't, you know, kill Odin. So they start on this plan, Richter vibrates their shackles apart, and uh, he and Sam stay there to try to steal the sword while the other New Mutants go to free the Anheriar. It's worth noting that they're working on a tight timeline. Mist is resisting Hela's influence as hard as she can. But it's inevitable that she's eventually going to fall prey to it, at which point their one big ally is not only going to be lost to them, but will turn on them. But right now she's okay for the moment, so she and Sunspot and Wolfsbane break off to go free the Anhariar from jail, and they do, and amid the Anhariar, amid the noble valiant dead of Asgard, is Scourge the motherfucking executioner. Scourge's fall in Simonson's run is probably my favorite moment in all of comics. And I don't want to go too much into it here because it's something that really bears reading yourself. Yeah, it is the greatest death scene in comics ever, fairly easily. Now, in another comic, in another mythology, seeing a character that died relatively recently in continuity in such an epic way here and fine would be sort of a letdown. It would be sort of a cheat. It would take away from the gravitas of that death. Dude, in this case, it just reinforces the gravitas and nobility of that death. He's one of the Einhariar. He's one of the noble fallen dead. He's supposed to be here. This is how his cosmology works. Exactly. And so they start heading in toward Hela to stop things. In the meantime, she has been enchanting the Death Sword as the possessed Mirage is reaching out for it. 
And I love how Danny is drawn here. She's just so far gone. The way Blevins draws her is just skin over bone, all red. She barely even resembles a person, let alone Danielle Moonstar. Sam blasts toward her. He's able to grab the sword and they make a run for it. But unfortunately, just as they're escaping, Mist finally falls to Hella's influence. She pushes them off a cliff, basically leads them directly off of it. Hella grabs the sword as it falls and Mirage confirms that the new mutants are in fact gone. Yes, they fell off a cliff and there are no bodies, which means they're definitely 100% for sure dead. There was lava under the cliff, so it's a little more justified than the usual, you know, call. But yeah, no, she's totally wrong. Hey, there's only one way to fall into lava, which is either reaching for the one ring and having it melt around your hand or giving a big thumbs up as you sink down. Those are the only two ways to do it. Okay. I mean, you know, there are rules to these things. So yeah, Hela does manage to finish enchanting the death sword. And I just want to do this narration right here. Go for it. The air of hell crackles with pulsing sorceries as Hela's interrupted sword spell is resumed. Every syllable is a sound of power, resonating, a physics beyond logic, binding dark energies to the molecular structure of the sword to create a weapon that is the betrayal of order and reason, a wretched fang of sorcery most poisonous to strike at the Allfather's heart. In a blinding flash, it is over. The death sword is complete. And all of Asgard trembles. Fuck yeah, Asgardian narration. I mean, apparently if your last name is Simonson, you can do kick-ass Asgardian captions. Indeed. And so, yeah, now we have Mirage with a death sword, about to assassinate Odin. We have four new mutants who are clearly 100% dead. Things are looking bad, so it's a good thing they're not, in fact, dead. Surprise! They are hovering somehow in Sam's blast field above the lava. Does that work? Can he hover? I thought he could only blast. Maybe he's just blasting very, very, very slowly, like he's sort of idling. He's nigh invulnerable when he's idling. Idling? Idling, yes, exactly. I'm side-eyeing this pretty hard. You know what? It's awesome. I'm gonna let it go. And they eavesdrop from there while Hela dresses her thousands of warriors. It looks so freaking Lord of the Rings here. Like, it's, it's like before the Battle of Helm's Deep. It is really epic looking. It's really sold by Blevins' art. Like, this is an army. But has it ever been fully recreated using peeps? I'm gonna say, yeah, I hope so. So, okay, let's amend the plan then, say the New Mutants, because clearly things are not going well and we keep getting captured and or pushed off cliffs. So we're still going to take out Mirage and the Death Sword and save Odin and protect him from being, you know, taken in by Hela's magic. Let's let the Asgardians, who won't know to protect Odin because they don't know that the Death Sword exists, let's let them fight the big army. Yeah, they can do that work while the New Mutants do the stuff that no one else will believe them enough to do. But first... They need a way to get there. I mean, Sam may be nigh invulnerable when he's blasted. Or Eidolon. Or Eidolon. Or Eidolon. But he's also pretty ostentatious and they want to be subtle. So they steal some pterodactyls. So they steal some pterodactyls. In fact, they do because there's like an aerial demon brigade, I guess, right near them. So they steal their clothes and also their pterodactyls. And I guess punching dudes off of pterodactyls isn't as satisfying as punching pterodactyls. But Not nearly. It's still good. It's still good. They are not the only ones who are stealing rides right now. Volstag's kids have tried to present their case to the Grand Vizier of Asgard when he found them in the jail cell, but have been rudely rebuffed, and they decide that what they have to do is take their case directly to Baldur, who is hanging out with Carnilla the Norn Queen. And to get there, they decide the only things that can get there in time are Thor's goats. So Thor travels around a lot of the time in a chariot pulled by two war goats named Toothnasher and Toothgrinder, and in some forms of mythology, he butchers and eats them every night for his dinner, and then they're fine the next morning. 
they're extremely hardcore, even for goats, which are by nature very, very hardcore. Have we mentioned that Norse mythology is the best mythology? Because it totally is. I mean, it's pretty good. It's got its moments. And so, yes, they take Tooth and Asher and Tooth Grinder to go to Nornheim, the realm of Carnilla, the Norn Queen. Now, Carnilla is not actually one of the Norns, the fates. She is a powerful Asgardian sorceress and an on-again, off-again antagonist who has had a thing for Baldur the Brave for a very, very long time, saved him a few times, got her entire kingdom turned to stone in the process, and he decided, you know, we can make this work. So the two of them have been shacking up amongst her petrified denizens for the last long time. Is that kind of weird? I mean, because like, I guess they're super weird. It's so weird. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of at the end of the 2007 Transformers movie where Shia LaBeouf and Megan Fox are making out on top of Bumblebee. While all the other Transformers watch. I mean, there were a lot of things wrong with that movie, and that is certainly one of them. That was a really upsetting scene. (laughs) Yes. But regardless, the kids aren't too concerned. And so uh, they explain what's going on. As Hildy says... The wolf prince from Hari told us that Hela has suborned the Valkyries and imprisoned the Einhariar. And another kid adds, She has armed her legions of the dead and plans to invade Asgard. That's nice, dear. You can tell your father when he's home for supper. See, that's the thing. In Midgard, Star Earth, in the real world, like, you'd be like, okay, yeah, whatever, kids, that's a good game. But this is not Midgard, this is Asgard, the home of Awesome, and so Baldur's like, holy crap, let's address this immediately to arms, my friends. Which is why, you know, Asgard is just better. Well, to be fair, he also knows that these are the best kids on Asgard. If the Power Pack shows up in your office and you're the Fantastic Four, you'll listen to them, too. That's a good point. Or if they showed up at Dark Horse Comics, I would listen to them if they came into my department. Would they be allowed in? Isn't that a sort of cross-company thing? I mean, you know, they'd have to get, like, some guest passes up front. It wouldn't be an issue that there's someone else's IP? Uh, You know, it's hard to say. I'll have to uh, consult the company policies. Would you have to negotiate some kind of... Does does it officially become a crossover by that point? (laughs) I think it might. But anyway, yes. So Carnilla says, all right. Well, if we're going to go to war, then the fact that my entire kingdom is turned to stone will not do. I'm going to try once again with all of my sorceries to revive them. And she tries super, super, super hard and nothing happens. But thankfully, Tiwaz, who apparently is watching everyone do everything all the time, which makes me feel a little self-conscious. Oh, yeah. He definitely watches you poop. Oh, man. That's creepy. He is watching and he feels kind of bad because Carnilla is just trying so hard. And so he blows his icy breath on the spy hologram magic thing he's using uh, while he watches them, and the people start moving. Now, they're still stone, mind you, but they start moving and talking, and they're alive again. And they're pretty excited about the fact that they're now badass stone people because they're like, oh, hell yeah, we can all go fight Hela's hordes, and like, we're made of stone. How good is that? So good. So good. We're going to hit things way harder than we could if we weren't made of stone. Way to make Nornheim lemonade out of these Nornheim lemons, Nornheimers. I mean, it's going to be kind of rocky lemonade, but... Well, you know... Rockade? Rock... No, no, we're just going to go with Nornheim lemonade. I think it's better that way. Is is Nornheim lemonade just another name for, like, rocks and water? Nornheim lemonade sounds like some fancy mixed drink at, like, a Portland gastropub. Or something that you definitely want to get your partner's explicit consent before trying. (laughs) Okay, Nornheim lemonade, possibly the episode title. Anyway, so, yeah, this is weird because the Nornheim people turning to stone was, like, a big plot point in the Baldur the Brave limited series, so to have it resolved here in a new mutant story is strange. I mean, look, one of the limitations of a limited series is you can't always tie up the loose ends in time. So they all go to war, and that means that Baldur the Brave puts on his armor and, okay, everybody looks awesome in Asgard, Baldur the Brave kind of looks especially awesome. Baldur the Brave's official color scheme as the greatest warrior of Asgard is bright pink and bright yellow. Yeah, and he's got these big kind of fin horn antennae things coming out of his head. Like if you took a Viking helmet and then you tried to papercraft it instead of having it be three-dimensional, it would look kind of like that. 
Asgard is a nation that is not afraid of bright colors and ostentatious hats. I want to live there. I know. Yeah, they really kind of are your people in that regard. They are. You need to learn to wear hats more, though. You know, my you, you hair, really is just, my hair is so big, it's hard to wear hats. I guess you could have a little hat, like Volstag's. I bet he has to hold it in with bobby pins. It's sort of a tiny skull cap. Yeah, okay, I could get one of those with yeah. the big plumes. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Okay, so now we have a bunch of stone warriors... We have, you know, a bunch of troll bugs. We have flying troll bugs. We have guys. all of our main characters, and they are all going to war. Well, and we have the Freedine Hariar, led by Scourge. And so, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of that part in Final Fantasy IV outside the giant of Babil, where like all the different people you've all met come to team up, or the part in um, Skies of Arcadia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where all the different pirates show up to help you in the big fight. Man, you're making this one actually mildly disappointing because now I just really want it to have an airship and it kind of doesn't. Well, it does have a lot of awesome stuff. It has Warlock. Warlock's an airship. And what it also has as the various armies gather on each side is Hela herself tearing through the sky with feet of flame as she walks through the air. Attack, ye hosts of hell, and bring me, Moonstar, the Allfather's heart. Okay, so this storyline, I gotta say, it's longer than it needs to be. It's really been dragging. It's a super weird way to wrap up the pre-cable era. But this part right here just makes me super happy. We now have everyone in the same place. We now have a great big war. I mean, the New Mutants, Frimhari, the Warriors 3, Volstag's kids on Thor's goats, Balder and Carnilla and the Stone Army, Ula and her troll hive. Well, the goats being sensible goats immediately stow the kids under a rock somewhere so they won't get hurt. Okay, that's reasonable. From which the kids then lean out and hit people's legs with hammers because they're Volstag's kids, goddammit. Yeah, and this is what an Asgardian battle should be. I mean, we have the Warriors 3 getting into it, as Hogan says. Well thrust, dashing Fandral. And Fandral replies... Tis nothing dashing about this vile battle, Hogan. I fear it will make me as grim as thee. Alternately, that's what she said. Yeah, yeah, well thrust, dashing Fandral? I I think that's what he said in their Warriors threesome. You're never allowed to give me shit for whatever terrible pun I just made that I can't remember now. I suppose that's true. By the way, warriorsthreesome.tumblr.com now exists and always had because I said that. Wait, did you register it before we recorded? No, no, it's just quantum fetish theory. Right. Yeah. Yes, if you have imagined it, there is now a thriving internet porn community based on it. Exactly. So anyway, um, the two halves of the New Mutants finally, after all these issues, reunite for like two seconds. Right, because once they find out what Danny's plan is, Warlock, Krimhari, and Boom Boom immediately take off to go stop her, not thinking to bring everyone else with them. Man, don't split the party again. Someone actually brings that up. And it, of course, doesn't go well, and they actually get taken down by Danny pretty quickly. Boom Boom is less than impressed. This is, three, one problem-filled environment you Guardians have here. Prince Harry, two, you know what? It makes New York look, one, like Disneyland. I do enjoy the interspersion of her various lines with the countdown. I like that she is pretty much always very careful to give a countdown. Like, people talk about her being reckless, but she's pretty consistent about that. So, yes, as all this is happening, as the battle rages outside, there's a prison break because the Unheriar were captured, you know, again, because everyone gets captured all the time in this story. But Itri, the master dwarf smith, has managed to file a custom key to unlock the jail cell door. So he lets everybody out, and so Scourge the Executioner leads the Unheriar into battle with the forces of hell with a bunch of assault weapons that they got in a previous Thor story. Now, B-Team, that's Cannonball's party, confronts Danny in Odin's chambers. Right, like this is the big showdown. She's about to use the Death Sword to strike down Odin in his Odin sleep. And these four new mutants are the last people who might be able to stop her. Spoiler, they can't. She takes them down efficiently with flame, with poison gas. She has 
horribly wounded if not killed pretty much all of them. And Itri the dwarf smith shows up at this point because he managed to escape when the Anharier did along with his daughter Kendra, telling her to tell his wife, her mother, that he didn't die in vain. So he steals a horse, whacks a bunch of demons on the way with a hammer, and goes to intervene, saying, If the sword needs blood, then let it drink mine! He doesn't actually manage to shatter the sword at this point, but he does manage to nick it and thereby mark the flaw that he forged into the sword. Because, of course, if he was forging a horrible world-ending device for a death goddess, he wasn't going to just, like, let her have that. There was going to be a flaw, there was going to be a way out, and this is that. Unfortunately, because of the combination of the materials of the sword and Hela's spell, it will probably kill the person who breaks it. Etri had planned for that to be him, but he is taken down too fast. Sam decides that he's going to step in and blast directly at the sword with an echoing shrek to boom and the Valkyries at this point, as the tower of the Odin Sleep explodes, are freed. They're all just normal people again, instead of like, you know, raw, fleshy fire monsters. Hela pauses for a moment to perch vulture-like above the battle while she vows revenge, then vanishes. And back in what's left of Odin's chambers, we see Mirage, naked and emaciated, collapsing amid her fallen friends, just asking, you know, what have I done? What have I done? Because... It looks like a lot of people are dead, a lot of damage has been done, and she remembers it even if she wasn't in control. Now, that wraps up the Asgardian portion of today's coverage. We see this wrap up, at least in the last issue we're covering, in New Mutants 85, with everyone in pretty rough shape. I mean, it's kind of a cliffhanger. We thought about maybe continuing onward, but this actually makes a better breaking point than after the next issue would. So we'll just say the good guys won, but a lot of people are in horrible peril and or dead. It's okay. They'll mostly get better eventually. But that's not all that's going on in these stories, because we've also been flashing back and forth in the various issues to Midgard, Star, Earth, to Rusty and Skids. To the very boring adventures of Rusty and Skids, the hapless kids imprisoned without even personalities to keep them company. Okay, so I was thinking about this, because this is really the last big Rusty and Skids story, and there's not a lot to it. Technically, it's an Acts of Vengeance crossover because they're, you know, fighting the Vulture and Nitro. <laughs> but, like, it's just so half-hearted. And these are characters that really were never allowed to develop because everybody around them was always a little more interesting. And I feel bad about that because I like them. And I was thinking about it, and I think I mainly like Rusty and Skids because I told myself I was going to like Rusty and Skids because no one else did. This is the same reason that yellow was your favorite color for a long time, isn't it? I always would pick the yellow board game piece because nobody else wanted it, and I thought it would feel bad. I mean, I basically made a lot of decisions based on similar premises. Yeah. Although in my house, it was always the orange board game piece. But... In this story, they fall into the same thing because they're being played against the Vulture, who's great. He's hilarious, but he's a scene stealer. And again, they're just sort of tagging along haplessly. Yeah, so Rusty and Skids are imprisoned pending a trial because, as we said earlier, Freedom Force thinks that Rusty was the one who caused all the fire damage and that Skids, you know, helped him resist arrest. And they've been there only briefly when guards drag in the Vulture. And everything this guy says is gold. I know he's mainly a Spider-Man villain. I've only read a little Spider-Man over the years, but he's great, apparently, because... Unhand me, you star-spangled baboon! What right have you to manhandle the vulture? Yeah, I love the way he talks. Old I may be, you muscle-bound nincompoop, but that gives you no right to insult me! Now, Vulture is hoping to get out Nitro, another relatively advanced-in-his-age villain who's currently being held in a cylinder full of knockout or nausea gas while he awaits trial because Nitro can just generate explosions, and even handcuffing him or tying him just isn't sufficient. 
And he finds wings in his cell made by someone, um, even though he hasn't received an official invitation to Act of Vengeance. I guess they were embossed or something, you know, sent out on engraved paper. Maybe they just screwed up the Evite. You know, you always leave somebody off in an invitation. It was probably just accidental. Probably so. So he was sent these makeup wings and he breaks out and Rusty sees the vulture trying to break out. And so breaks out of his own cell to try to capture the vulture, which he repeatedly fails to do. Rusty is so bad at staying arrested. Rusty is really, really bad at staying arrested. He's also really bad at looking like the good guy when he is doing good things. So here he's like firing at a guard to keep the vulture from hitting him, you know, to knock the guy down and stuff like that. And Rusty just comes off as a supervillain. Yeah. Now Skids is like, hey, what gives, as she says? Why do you care if the vulture escapes? Why help the humans anyway? They're the ones who jailed us. Now, this is weird because we've been used to seeing Skids as basically, you know, the nice, quiet team mom. Also because they were definitely jailed by mutants. Well, that too. And so it's strange to see her being kind of anti-human. But then again, I mean, she was a Morlock and humans treat the Morlocks pretty badly. So that's a thing, I guess. Yeah, we just haven't seen much of this because, again, Skids just has been kind of underdeveloped. We've gotten one kind of tiny bit of backstory about her family. And other than that, pretty much nothing. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Now, I mean, she'll have a little bit more of a future career. Like, she goes on to become an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. She and Rusty will both be in the Mutant Liberation Front for a while, and then the Acolytes. And then Rusty will die in space, kind of pointlessly. God damn it. I'm still mad at that. Bring back Rusty. So in the, uh, in the new line of X-Men, there have been some teasers for, like, what X-Men Blue and Gold and stuff are going to be about. And one of the teasers is that a beloved mutant will return to lead the X-Men into their future. And I'm pretty sure it's Rusty Collins. It's definitely got to be Rusty Collins. So we'll be following their adventures with the Vulture and Nitro again further on once we get to New Mutants number 86. Spoiler, they don't really get any more interesting. Alas. For now, however, you've got questions. Prax Jarvin asks on Tumblr, Hey, hey, I've been binge listening to your episodes and I'm deep in the throes of Inferno, but I've had an X-related question that's been bugging me for a long time. Was Cable originally supposed to be an older, grizzled longshot with his memories back fighting to save Mojo World after Uncanny number 248? The name, Cable TV, and the eye flare, and the fifth fingers that look added on in the first cover with him, always made me think there was supposed to be a connection, but I can never find an answer. Alas, the answer is no, there is no connection between Longshot and Cable. Cable was created whole cloth by some combination of Louise Simonson, Rob Liefeld, and Bob Harris. Accounts of that variant, we're going to dive deep into that one as soon as Cable starts showing up in the comics, but any resemblance to Longshot was pretty much accidental. Yeah, now of course, Shatterstar, another character from around the same era, totally has a huge connection to Longshot. I gotta say though, the whole like Cable-Longshot connection, that would have been a really cool way to take it. And maybe it was intended, we never read about it, and I kind of wish it was, because that's awesome. Yeah, the closest connection they ever get is the absolutely not canon, but still completely delightful Let's Be Friends Again strip, uh, Long Shot and Cable in a Blackout. <laughs> yes, it's just a bunch of glowing eyes and everyone's confused, it's great. Alright, an anonymous listener asks also on Tumblr, My husband grew up without much exposure to comics. Most of his exposure to the characters has been through video games or movies. He has stated that he craves continuity, which stops him from getting into comics. Can you guys suggest a starting point he might like? The Last of Us, which I've heard you guys mention before, is his heart and soul, but he also likes Dragon Ball Z and some AMC shows like Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead. Well, I mean, I guess the obvious places to start would be The Last of Us comics or The Walking Dead comics, because they're both really good, especially The Last of Us comics. Yeah, I'm deeply biased because I edited those. But um, yeah, The Last of Us comics are terrific. I think they're a good way to learn the medium because it's a, a limited series and it's with, well, one character you're already familiar with. It's about Ellie and Riley in some of the space before the first game and actually before the DLC as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, The Walking Dead obviously is also pretty self-contained. In general, I would recommend picking up a fairly self-contained series, one with a beginning, middle, and an end. 
Why the Last Man, I think, could be a really good thing. That was a Vertigo series from not too long ago. Um, it's post-apocalyptic and very character-based, like The Last of Us. Also self-contained, and one of my favorite series from that entire era. It's incredibly well done. If you want something with a slightly larger but still self-contained universe, there's always Hellboy. You can read through this in order. It's got a fairly set continuity. There is a companion, which, again, I'm shamelessly promoting like books that I've worked on <laughs> at this point. But Hellboy is terrific, and it's a good sort of jump into more mythic-flavored stuff and stories. And something a little bit closer to a shared universe. It's got multiple lines of comics and multiple intersecting stories and bits of backstory. But again, it's sort of all under the auspices of one editorial office and really one creator who's sort of keeping an eye on it from the top and has a hand in pretty much everything. Taking things a little further into continuity, there's always DC's Starman, a comic we both really love. Oh, yeah, that is a great pick because it's set in a shared universe and it's a good introduction to that universe, but its continuity is totally self-contained. Right. And so I think it also is a good way to sort of internalize the concept, which you really have to reading, especially superhero comics, that you're not going to know everything. And that's OK, because a good story will tell you the parts you do need to know and give you references to the stuff you could read if you want to to learn more about that stuff. Plus, it's just a really great story. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support on Patreon come with acknowledgement on the show from a number of fictional entities. I believe that today I am turning it over initially to Loki, the god of lies. Thou hast conceived a way to kill the Allfather, my daughter Hela. Please. Clever to be sure, but where is the panache of Loki's servant, Tim Riley? The delicious irony so well created by mine follower, Andrew Curran. Where beest the part where thou transformeth a lady with a mohawk into a hawk, thus creating a hawk-hawk? Goddess of death though you may be, Hela, thou hast much to learn before equaling the theatrically wicked mischief of the god of lies and tales, Loki. And I'll turn it over from here to the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you had prepared for this, Grant, but now at the gates of hell... All your training and resolve have come to naught. All you can do now is pray that Jeff McCrory can succeed where you, once again, have failed. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan arts, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, X-Factor takes on God as the Judgment War concludes. And don't forget to come see us at Vegas Valley Comic Book Fest on Saturday, November 5th.